With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Dahlia Lithwick, legal correspondent, author, and host of Slate's Amicus Podcast, a show about the rule of law, the law, and the Supreme Court justices who interpret it for the rest of us. I've been watching the high court for over two decades, and I bring all that experience and knowledge to examining the U.S. justice system and democracy. Each episode, I am joined by guests with deep knowledge of the law and policy who help me and you navigate our constitutional landscape. Slate's Amicus Podcast. Subscribe now wherever you listen. Hi, this is Jen Rubin at Jen Rubin's Green Room. Today, we have an incredibly special guest, Fred Guttenberg, who is the father of Jamie, one of the young people who was slaughtered at Parkland several years ago, and has now become not only an author of two vitally important books, one Carnage, the other Find the Helpers, but has become one of the most prominent gun safety advocates in the country. You will see him on television. You will read his columns. Hopefully you'll read his books. He has shown remarkable courage in coming forward, in getting up every morning, and despite his personal tragedy, or perhaps because of it, to bring the message to Americans that they can do something. We don't have to live with this crazy gun culture that we have developed. And it gives me great pleasure to have him on the show. So without further ado, Fred, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? I am good. I'm good. Uh, It is such a pleasure and honor to actually uh, have you individually. We've communicated over the years via all the other social media and communications, but um, it's, uh, as I say, wonderful to to have you to myself for just a little bit. And and we found a quiet news day to do it, which is You know, we never have anything going on anymore. It really is. Um, And uh, that's the, the insane time that we live in. So let me talk to you on a very personal level. How is it that you get up every day and do this, which must, of course, force you to relive and to keep Jamie's image uh, front and center? Listen, um, I'm always Jesse and Jamie's dad. And Jesse, my son, who was also at the school, and who is now a 22-year-old young man. Uh, and my wife um, are the reasons I get up every day. You know, I have a lot to live for. Honoring Jamie um, gives me a lot to live for. Um, and, you know, I, I did a TED Talk a few years ago about how I refuse to look at Jamie in the past tense that I, I, I look at things between Jamie and I as a change in our relationship. It used to be where everything was about creating new memories together. And now it's about honoring her memory and making sure the world never forgets her name and whatever that means. Um, but it's, it's the desire to always be the best husband and dad that I can be that keeps me going forward. It is honestly also tinged with guilt that I never used my voice before this happened to my family. Um, That gets me up every day wanting to be a voice in the mission to stop the next one. Um, And I, listen, I love my country. I go around this country and I meet the most amazing people and I find the fight worth it. Absolutely. When you 
talk to other parents who have since become touched personally by gun violence. They've had a child, a brother, a mother, a sister, friend. What is it that you tell them when you meet with them um, that you think gives them some small bit of solace at that moment when you interact with them? I think a lot depends on when I interact with them. Um, If it's in the real immediate aftermath, a lot of it is just helping them get through seconds, minutes, and days. Um, When you go a little further out, people tend to be in that mode of what's next. And I tell them what President Biden told me, which is no two people grieve the same way. And so figuring out what's next is a very personal thing for you. Um, Some people choose a really quiet path. And if that's what fits for them, then that's what they should commit to. And some people choose a very vocal path. Um, In my own home, we've gone both ways. (laughs) I have become a really public person and my wife and my son really desperately need their privacy. Um, We're not grieving the same way. And I will tell you, President Biden telling me that as early in this process as he did saved me in a lot of ways because I would have wondered what's wrong with my family? What's wrong with my relationship with my wife? Why is my son not doing what I see other kids doing? Um, But I don't, you know, I understand. And, And it's, it's been really important for us to find the ways to grieve together while allowing each other to grieve uniquely. The, the other thing I tell people, it's what I've kind of coined as permission to be honest. Um, a lot of people are going to engage you. They're going to ask you personal details. They're going to come up and put their hand on your shoulder and say, how are you? Hoping that you're going to tell them you're okay because it helps them to feel better. And I tell everybody, after you've been through this, you have absolute permission to be honest. Um, I've had to tell many people when they've put their hand on my shoulder the truth about how I'm feeling, whether or not that's what they wanted to hear. And I've also had to tell some people, you're pushing this conversation too far and I need you to stop. Um, I think there's a permission to be honest that people grieving don't always embrace. Um, And just last, and it's why I wrote my first book, Find the Helpers. Know who your people are. Know who your helpers are. And don't shut them out. Embrace them. Let them do whatever they can for you because they do love you. And you did meet President Biden. My recollection is rather early in the process. Tell us how you met and what that was like. So about one week after the shooting, it might have even been less than a week, and sometime mid-afternoon, let's call it 2 o'clock, I get a phone call from a number that I didn't recognize, and I was getting a lot of those, so I just wasn't answering them. If somebody wanted to talk to me, they could leave me a message. And he did. It was, at the time, private citizen Joe Biden. And he said to me, um, he was going to call me back again at 6 p.m. from this exact same number. And that if I, that there was no obligation if I didn't want to speak to him, but he just wanted me to know if he saw the, if I saw the number again. And we all know his penchant for being late, but he wasn't. At exactly 6 p.m., my phone rang. Wow. And it was him. And um, I probably spent almost an hour on the phone with him. Um, He wanted to know everything about Jamie. He also wanted to know everything about my wife, my son, and I. Just he wanted to get to know us. And he spoke to me about his family. And he spoke to me about those that he's currently has the 
the the the amazing um, pleasure of being able to love on a day in day out basis, but also those that have been lost. Um, and the most recent, because it wasn't long after Bo's death, um, and he spoke to me about grief, and I remember him talking to me about um, at the time how we all grieve differently, and how he and he calls her Jilly, you know, were going through Bo's loss differently. Um, and then at the very end of the conversation, he said to me, what's your plan? And I said, I don't really know yet. I don't, what I know is I want to destroy the effing gun lobby. He goes, no, that's not your plan. He goes, that's your mission. He goes, now what's the plan? You know, um, and it was such a, it was such a, uh, an eye-popping moment for me. Ever since that conversation, I do. I think about my life as being on this mission and having this purpose and always, always, always planning to achieve that mission and that purpose. Um, three weeks after the call, he was in Florida for a Bo Biden event, which he invited me to attend. And he said I could bring another Parkland parent. And we did. Um, I'll never forget it because there were about 250 people in this home waiting to hear him speak. He walked in. He greeted a bunch of people. He, I expected he was just going to shake our hand. You know, I didn't expect much of it. Um, but after he greeted a bunch of people, he motioned to his aide to take myself and the other dad into a private room. Again, I'm thinking I'm going to have a minute. About 20 minutes into this, I said, you have like a whole house full of people out there waiting to hear you speak. And he just said, this is more important and spent another 20 minutes with us. Again, talking to us about moving forward from grief and about um, the importance of really investing in supporting our loved ones, even if they're grieving differently. I mean, it was such a focus of what he spoke to us about. You just knew it was came from experience, um, and I, I, I've been committed to that guy ever since. Uh, I just think he is a, a truly amazing human being, and thankfully he is our president now as well. I can imagine when you got that message, you must have asked yourself, is this just a very clever impersonator? I mean, it's it's stunning that you would have gotten a call from the former vice president at that point, um, but it was definitely the real guy. He, 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 listen, and he, what was amazing to me is during the campaign, um, on February 14th, 2019, I guess it would have been at the one year remembrance, he called me again that night. I, th I think he was in South Carolina and, you know, there, there was no certainty as to how things were going to go, um, but whatever, he should have been campaigning all day, but he took the time to stop and call and check in on me. Um, he, he is, he's, he's just an amazing human being. That's remarkable. So I'm sure you have spent hours, days, weeks thinking about this. What is it about the gun lobby that has such a grip on politicians? Is it just the money? Is it something else? What is going on that causes these people to really suspend humanity, rationality? What is it? Well, it's a great question. And, and I think the answer to that question has evolved. Because I think now many of them are just simply true believers. Um, you know, but it, it, again, it's why I wrote my book, American Carnage, uh, because part of what motivated me is to get to the truth of who we are as a country. And as a country, we, we were not always this way. We've always been a country with gun owners who believed in the notion of gun safety and through our history, we always passed laws supportive of gun safety. 
That was not like a, a an unusual thing. I mean, look at the Supreme Court Bruin case from last year. That wasn't some radical new law that they overturned. It was 100 years old, you know, um, because that's who we were as a country. So what happened is in 1977, a guy by the name of Harlan Carter in their um, convention in Cincinnati took over the NRA. There was like a mutiny at the NRA because Gun sales had been declining because the hunting industry had been declining. There was no longer a draft. And Harlan Carter in a mutiny took over the NRA. What people did not know about Harlan Carter was he changed a vowel in his name. And the reason why that matters is Harlan Carter was actually a convicted murderer. Um, And this is the guy who transformed the NRA and spent a whole bunch of years moving it into this new political direction, um, funding campaigns, pushing for legislation, um, and tr- and funding really, really, really bad research, like things on defensive uses and things like that. And, you know, you didn't really see the impact of that until in the 90s things started to change. You started to see some shell carry laws getting passed in the United States. But the real big transformation didn't actually happen until the 2000s. Again, this country wasn't always this way. And the first big, the first really amazingly big victory, other than getting people elected, because they were, they were very successful through the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s, step by step, one by one, getting people elected. And they finally had their big success in 2005 here in Florida with Stand Your Ground. Um, That was a transformational thing for them. Um, And, you know, back then, even up until the Parkland murder, so much of what they did was dependent upon their ability to put money into campaigns you saw these radical, crazy um, gun people getting elected who, who just wanted the A-plus rating from the NRA, which, by the way, they don't use anymore since Parkland. We, we, we put an end to that. The, the rating system is gone because we made it toxic. Um, but what's different now is if you go walk through this new Congress, they're true believers. You know, um, when I was there in, in May on my book tour, I, I handed out a copy of my book to every member of Congress. And when I was in Thomas Massey's office, we all know who that is. He's the guy uh, who had the Christmas card with the yeah, yeah. semi-automatic weapons, including ones held by their little children. The, the crazy thing about going through Congress now is when you go into a Democrat's office, they're—, they're personnel dealing with with the issue of guns. They're called gun violence prevention staffers. When you go to the Republicans' office, they're called Second Amendment staffers. So so I'm in Thomas Massey's office debating his Second Amendment staffer. And you've been in congressional offices before. You kind of, you walk into the big open area, and then there's there's usually like an area to the left or the right where all the staffers are. And then on the other side is the congressperson's personal office. So I'm in the big open area debating the Second Amendment staffer, going on for about 20 minutes. And listen, he, 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 he was a true believer. The conversation finally came to an end when, I, when he said to me, you know, your daughter could just have been easily killed with a rock in school. And that's when I said, honestly, this just came to an end. There's no point in going any further. Good golly. But, but Thomas Massey, okay, because he's a true believer too, was sitting on the staffer side of, of, of the office. I could see him sitting there with a staffer. And you could see he was listening to everything. I guess at some point, he needed to cross over and get into his personal office. So he now had to walk by me. And as he's walking by, I said, I'm assuming you've been hearing some of that. He goes, every word of it. And I said, well, I'm Fred Gutmer. He goes, oh, no, I know who you are. 
And with his head down, he just kept on walking. You see, that's who they are. And, and, and I'm done trying to figure them out. There is a truth to how we got where we are today. And my only mission now is to defeat every one of them. And the NRA, do they take money, do they survive on nickels and dimes from gun owners, or are they the lobby for the gun manufacturers? Where do they get their most of their well, money? Well, it, it, it's, it's both. But, but they get a ton of money from manufacturers. And listen, um, there's plenty of documentation, looking back to when Trump was elected, about a huge influx of money that came from Russia. Um, so, so, but, but they get their money from manufacturers, um, and while politically and financially they are a weakened group, they exist. And as long as they exist, they are dangerous. And here's their, their, their most significant impact may actually be happening during their weakest moment because when, after Parkland, when politically they started losing. I mean, we flipped the house on the issue of guns in 2018. When they started losing politically and their rating system became toxic, they started filing a whole lot of lawsuits. And these lawsuits are now percolating up to the Supreme Court. Bruin was the first. In the next session, there's going to be another lawsuit where the Supreme Court is actually going to hear a case about whether or not um, uh, uh, violent domestic abusers can be kept from their guns. And the Supreme Court actually is going to hear that case as if it's even a question. Okay, but this this is the, this is going to be the lasting legacy, I fear, of the NRA. We in, in Florida after Parkland, three weeks after we passed real gun safety legislation. One of the things we did was raise the age to 21. And the NRA has been fighting that tooth and nail since. An appeals court panel just months ago actually ruled to uphold the, the, the judicial findings of lower courts. Well, now the full 11th Circuit of the appeals court has agreed to um, rehear the case in front of the full circuit, not just the three-judge panel. And and I I fear the 11th Circuit, which is a more conservative body, um, will overturn the finding of the panel. And if they don't, then it's going to work its way up to the Supreme Court as well. And, And listen, this Supreme Court, they are there for a reason. And we see it on guns. We see it on choice. We're seeing it on too many things. Um, but for the NRA, this legal strategy, while it's coming at their weakest moment, may actually be their most impactful so far. And as you point out with other issues, they've lost the hearts and minds of the majority of Americans. The majority overwhelming majority of Americans are with you. So they have to resort to the courts, which have been stacked by presidents elected without electoral majorities, putting in extreme judges who are confirmed by a Senate that is heavily tilted towards red states um, and right-wing people who get NRA money. So that's their workaround, if you will, around democracy. Because... I have not seen uh, in my lifetime um, as much progress with American opinion in general, even people, and I count myself among them, who had some sympathy toward the kind of image of the Western independent guy with the, you know, has the rancher or what have you. The sheer number, the sheer exhaustion of slaughter after slaughter has, I think, impressed upon the vast majority of Americans that something is really, really wrong. So you and others have done a remarkable job of raising with these people. It doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to put up with this. This is not how other civilized places run their societies. Figuring out what's wrong is actually easy. Um, and, and, 
and I, I've been lately putting everything into the context of my daughter's 20. She just turned 20 last week. Should have turned 20. She was killed when she was 14. So when you look at this in a 20-year span, 20 years ago, there were 200 million weapons in America. Okay? And again, it gets to the success of what that group did through the 80s and the 90s, and then really having its full impact in the 2000s. 20 years later, we're now over 400 million weapons plus ghost guns. We've more than doubled our arsenal. 20 years ago, AR-15 sales were less than 2% of all guns sold. Today, 20 years later, 25% of all guns sold. And again, looking at what they did to bring us to this place, when you look at AR-15 sales, it didn't spike after the ban ended in 04. The real spike happened after 2008. And in 2008, they were still just under 5% of all guns sold. And, and there's two different schools of thought, well, on this. One school is the one that I feel strongly about. One, the first school of thought is, well, that's the year Obama got elected. That's why. I don't buy that for a second. Because there was something else big that happened in 2008. It was the Supreme Court Heller decision. And the Heller decision defined something called common use. Common use. Didn't exist before. It was like adding language to the Second Amendment. And what common use says is any weapon in common use at the time can't be restricted. And if you look at the data following 2008, Okay, the industry went on a manufacturing binge that accelerated year on year on year. At the time in 2008, they said, no, you know, these are just sport weapons. You know, some people use them for hunting, but it's sport. That was a really small market. They were producing far in excess of what they said their market was. And then they had to start developing marketing strategies, including marketing to children. Okay. To the point where we now have 25% of all guns sold as AR-15s, only 15 years later. But what you see all the Republicans in Congress now saying is you can't restrict them because they are in common use. And I fear this current Supreme Court is going to take a decision from 15 years ago that resulted in a business strategy and certify it. Um, but... But it wasn't always this way, and it didn't need to be this way. And the data that actually just came out earlier today shows how over the past 10 years, how the numbers of shootings done with rifles has skyrocketed to the point where in the past three years, it's now 59%. And what it also shows is shootings done with those versus handguns are far more deadly. I am, I, am, I am not going to continue putting up with the lies that put us in this position. I've made a habit of saying in the past couple of months, stop listening to the liars, okay? Because this isn't who America is. This is not the way America always was. And when you go back, you use the, the, the example of, you know, that, that Western uh, uh, person defending their land. They believed in gun safety. Yes, they did. You know? So it, this just isn't who America is or was. And 80% of America agrees with me on that. So how a minority of elected people hold the majority hostage is the, the, the disconnect for me. But what I will tell every single American voter is this. In the 24 election. You do not need to fall in love with a candidate. You do not need to look for the perfect candidate. Don't worry if you're completely inspired by a candidate. But if they believe in gun safety, if they believe in supporting a woman's right to choose, if they believe in upholding democracy, if they believe in protecting the environment, just get off your you-know-what and vote. Because that's how we fix it. You know, it's fascinating from a psychological marketing process, the devices they use 
to tamp down on criticism. It's never the right time to talk about it. It's too yeah. soon. Well, then it's too late. The moment has passed. If you pass some law, they say, oh, it's too extreme. If you pass something that's more mild, it says, oh, it doesn't make a difference anyway. It becomes almost a game with them because there is no defense for maintaining this ludicrous state of affairs. So do you try to debate with them or do you simply call it out and go to the source who are the voters and the perhaps still persuadable lawmakers? Well, it's a great question. Not for probably the first year after Jamie was killed, I maybe even longer, I tried to debate, I tried to reason, I tried to explain why, how for me, it was the right time. And, I, you know, you can't tell me not to continue doing what I do after what I've been through. I, I try, now I just tell them to shut up, you know? I mean, that's the truth. Um, and now I tell everyone when they start with that nonsense, stop listening to the liars. Um, you know, they are the ones who put us in this place. And, and again, it this hasn't been, this is when this has literally happened over a 20, 25 year period of time. Okay. But they've been very effective and successful in that time. Um, but stop listening to the liars because while we were all afraid to speak, they turned phrases like, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun into a real thing. So here's the deal on that phrase. You probably don't even know when it started. It started five days after Sandy Hook. That phrase was the NRA. It was Wayne LaPierre. He gave the Sandy Hook families five days or so to mourn. And then he had his public response. The very first time that phrase was ever uttered was during the Wayne LaPierre response to the Sandy Hook shooting. They took Sandy Hook and turned it into a gun sales bonanza, okay? And they're going to tell us when we should or shouldn't talk? Shut up. Absolutely not, okay? You will not tell me when I will speak. In fact, when there are shootings... You can count on me being the first one out there to talk about it and to be there to blunt you because I am not interested in hearing what you have to say. Too many people have died because of them. Absolutely. When we do muster the political will, as Congress did, um, and pass even a very, very modest um, gun bill, it was the first in 30 years yeah, that yeah. President Biden pushed through, what is your reaction to that? Is that, oh, God, it's so pathetic that we have so little? Or is it encouraging to you that at least we have a toehold? We did something the NRA didn't want us to do, and that in and of itself is positive. So, listen, it, it was modest, but but absolutely necessary. And, and, and to me, that bill showed the power of what is possible when we vote. It would never have happened had we not turned the House in 18, turned the Senate in 20, and elected President Joe Biden. So while modest, it had to be to get this, to get it passed through the Senate and to get some Republicans along. But it shows what's possible when we vote. So to me, the message to everybody is don't get upset by it because it did break the back of the NRA. It's the first one in 30 years. Okay, but yeah, we should go further. Make sure you vote in 24, because that's how we go further. I was really honored to actually be a part of the process to negotiate that final result. I worked with Senator Murphy and many of the others who were, who were just heroic. Um, and I will tell you, while modest, there were some really big things in there that will make a difference on, on domestic abusers, on kids under 21, on trafficking of weapons. And while it's still early, because for me, the goal is always, how do you reduce the gun violence death rate? How do you reduce instances of gun violence? Over the past couple of months, we're starting to see the curve bend, okay? 
And so it's still early, but there is good news that's st- starting to look apparent. But we need more, and we should expect more, and we need to get out and vote and, and make it clear. This is a reason we are voting. One of the things that we've seen more of now, and we saw it after Parkland due to you and other parents, is that there has been some progress, not everywhere, there have been many steps back, but some progress at the state level. And there have been people, including uh, your friend and mine, um, Matt Bennett at Third Way, who then put out evidence that this works at the state level. You look at the gun laws and they correlate to a difference in the number of deaths. When you look at blue states that enforce gun safety, less people die than they do in red states with very permissive gun laws. So it although it's not the perfect solution because, of course, guns travel and um, people with guns travel, it's something. And the fact that it makes a marked difference should tell people it should be in all of the above, shouldn't it? It should be states, it should be local, it should be federal, it should be um, litigation against the gun companies. It should be all of these things because each one may save some lives. You are a million percent Correct. Um, blue states are safer than red states by a by a tall measure, um, and it is because blue states are taking the time to pass real significant legislation regarding reducing gun violence, um, and the data is clear. But we are only as safe as our closest border, and that is why a national approach is needed. Um, and it's also why, um, again, if you live in a state like Florida and you live in a state like Texas, don't get frustrated by the recent successes of Republicans who don't care in those states. Go out and vote because you can make a difference In the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis isn't loved. Ron DeSantis figured out how to get his base to vote and how to depress Democrats enough from doing so. And that is why he had success. And now, because of that, they're emboldened. They think everybody wants what they're selling. And Floridians are waking up and realizing this actually isn't what we wanted. You know what? Vote. Voting solves problems. And make sure, just make sure you're informed. You do understand you with your, with your vote can change the direction of things like gun violence. You can do it. You know, it's such an important part. We saw this in Tennessee when kids walked out of school in protest And what did the state legislature, heavily Republican, do? They tried to shut up. And when they wouldn't shut up, they threw out two lawmakers. They happened to be African-American males. They spared the white woman. So let's not be confused about the racial element of this. Because they couldn't deal with it, even in a body that was overwhelmingly Republican. They had to shut them up. And the link between democracy, between having fairly drawn districts so that the representatives actually represent the people rather than hand-selected ideologues um, of their choosing, I think is incredibly important for people. I know people's eyes glaze over when we talk about redistricting and we talk about voting rights. All of this is connected because if you have true democracy, if you have voting rights, then we will solve the other problems. Listen— Absolutely. Um, And right now as a country, we are, listen, we're being held hostage by a minority of voters. We are. Uh, It doesn't have to be this way, um, but 
listen, redistricting and gerrymandering have on in local races had a, 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 a horrific effect. I'm pleased to actually see the courts recently um, sta- standing up and at least um, making sure we don't allow some of that really bad stuff to continue. I didn't expect the courts to do that, but they did, which was good. But, you know, listen, Senate races, presidential, governors, those are statewide, okay? That's just a question of you get out and you vote, okay? Just vote. And, 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 I, and I think what gerrymandering has done is not only made it easier for a lot of these districts to flip Republicans, some of these red states, it's also depressed voters, Democratic voters, from even voting. Um, and that's where, the, to me, an even bigger problem lies, because you don't solve anything sitting home. Right. And we shouldn't give up on states. We saw it in the abortion context, Kansas. Kansas, when they put something on the ballot, it was an overwhelming victory for pro-choice in Kansas. That means yes. Republicans are voting for these things. So when yeah. given a choice, when you can isolate the issue, when you can make it about something like guns, like a woman's right to choose, people will surprise you or they will defy the pundits, whichever way you want to look at it. So I would assume that your efforts go on in all 50 states plus the District of Columbia, you're not giving up anywhere? You're not oh, no, seeing listen, any ground? Um, I will travel this country um, delivering this message in every state that I can. I live in a state where, I mean, listen, Florida. Um, but you know what? My condolences. Nobody should give up on Florida because while... Democrats sat home in the last election, okay, and they did. The numbers are terrible, okay? They did. It doesn't mean they will in the next one. We got to get them out. We got to, and, and, it's, and oh, listen, I, I, I hate even saying we have to give them a reason to come out because I think everyone has enough of a reason right now, okay? But we got to get them out. And Florida is not a lost cause. It is not. I've always told everybody, Ron DeSantis is simply not a lovable guy. The more you get to know him, you're not going to like him. Trust me on this one. Um, and I think people are seeing that. So, sure. so Florida's not a lost cause. I, I, I look across this country. I've, I've traveled to every state, Texas. Every, I meet people in every community who are amazing and wonderful and want the same things I want and who, just like me, have people that they love and who they want to support. And so you know what? Let's just give, let's, let's just assume and work our tails off to make sure it happens that 24 is going to be a year where we're going to see turnout unlike any other year. I believe we will. I believe the majority of voters are ready to vote for things like choice and reducing gun violence and saving democracy. Uh, and I, I do. I have hope. I really do. And you know what I have hope for? Again, we've been told, oh, young people don't vote. Don't spend time on young people. Young people are voting in great numbers. And this is the generation, including my kids, who grew up with lockdown drills, who, if yeah. they haven't been in a shooting, have grown up with fear of a shooting. They are the leaders. The other generations are following them. We saw that in Tennessee. We see that elsewhere. That if you want a message that is going to resonate with young people, talk to those people who have now lived through multiple shootings. I remember at Michigan State, we had people who had had that experience in K through 12, and they had it again in college. We have multiple victims now of the same phenomenon. So if you are a young person, or if you're a parent or you're a grandparent, whatever age, and you want to do something to help, other than voting, other than getting people out to vote, what are the organizations, what are the things that they can go to to be part of this movement, to help, and to help move the ball forward? Well, first, uh, listen, I love our young kids. They are amazing. Um, I'll just say this, because I... 
because the, the youth movement really started to a large extent out of Parkland with March for Our Lives. I knew these kids before the shooting. I was one of the um, older people who didn't think young people knew how to talk because I thought they were all buried in their phones. And I didn't think they knew how to communicate. And I was wrong. They didn't know how to communicate. They know what they want. They're fierce and asking for it. And their phones actually turn into their weapon because they were able to coordinate and strategize and organize in ways that we couldn't keep up with. So I love our young kids. However, I will also say this. When I hear adults say, I hope the young people show up and get it done, I get angry because I will tell every one of those adults, "Uh uh-uh, yes, they need to show up and get it done. You better get out there and vote also. Okay, we did this. We better vote also. Every time I hear someone say, I hope someone else comes out and votes, I remind them they better get out there and do it also. But as for young people, listen, there's a bunch of really terrific groups, um, two that I'm personally close with, or actually three. Um, you got March for Our Lives. You've got Voters of Tomorrow. Um, you know, Brady has a group of amazing young activists who are out there doing um, uh great work to to stimulate voters and to talk about reducing gun violence. So there's a lot of terrific, great groups out there that depending on where you're located and if you're in high school or college, um, they give you all sorts of opportunities. I mean, just a Google search away. And I would add to that, although they're perhaps a little bit older, um, Moms Demand Action, which is a great example of citizen activism, which is people saying, I've had enough, just like we had MAD, which was, I think, the mom, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, you now have Moms Demand Action. And when you see those women out there in those red shirts, it gives me hope. Um, They are ferocious, they are effective, and they are everywhere. Um, the moms, amount of organization listen, they've done is phenomenal. I, uh, I've tried, moms and kids are amazing. I've tried to get dads to be as engaged. It's a lot harder. <laughs> um, and I'm not really sure why. Um, and maybe it, there's this macho thing with guns or, um, but dads just don't get out there and engage as fiercely as moms and kids are doing it. Um, I've tried. I, I will tell you, I, I started this initiative two Father's Days ago called Dads for Gun Safety. Um, and one of my now closest friends came out of that initiative, and it's, it's former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh. Uh, because at first, he and I went back and forth on Twitter, but then we ended up talking offline. Um, and he now joins me going around the country, talking about the need to pass gun safety measures. He's still a gun guy, but he wants to do something and to support democracy. And and while he is a former Tea Party congressman, he tells everyone he talks to in the 24 election, you better only vote for Democrat because that's what democracy needs right now. Um, You know, so it came out of that whole initiative, but by and large, getting this mass number of dads to just step in and organize, it, it, it's, it's, there, it's been an unexpectedly harder push. Well, dads have got to get off the stick and get there because yes. the women and kids are uh, well ahead of them. You know, whenever I get depressed about these things, I think about something the great Sherilyn Eiffel um, said. In fact, it's at the top of her Twitter feed. She said, at no point in American history did black women say, and then they gave up. And I think it's a great reminder that the people who have suffered the most adversity, the most uh, pain, if they don't give up, the rest of us have no excuse. The rest of us have to be just a little bit brave, a little bit active, a little bit motivated. And I take that from her. I take your example, Fred, that if Fred can get up every morning and do these things, my gosh, the rest of us can do something. Um, And if you've done that, I think you've 
made a huge difference in people's lives. Just giving them a sense of agency, a sense that it's not hopeless. Hopelessness is the asset of authoritarians and repressive regimes because they want you to feel that it's impossible, it's futile. Um, but you, Fred, are showing it's not futile. Um, so thank you so much for what you are doing for all of us. Thank you for joining us. And everybody who is listening to this should go out and get both your books. Um, if they were foolish enough to have missed the first one, they can get them both um, at Amazon or wherever you get your books. Go get them. Um, they will inspire you and uh, they will go for a good cause. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Fred, for coming. Thank you for having me. And that was Fred Guttenberg. What a admirable guy, what a courageous guy, and what an example for all of us. If gun safety is your issue, but if it's the environment, if it's women's right to choose, if it's racial justice, whatever it is, he is a standing example that you have agency, you have a choice. You can get up every day and you can doom scroll through your Twitter feed or hopefully you're off Twitter now and on threads, but you can bemoan and um, really commiserate with friends or you can do something. There are great organizations, Fred listed some of them, and there are people who are out doing the hard work of democracy and it works. You can change the system. You can change hearts and minds. And I think Fred is right. We shouldn't give up on states. We shouldn't give up on voters. We should stick it out there. Um, and that's a great message, whatever your mission in life is. So, uh, wow. Thank you, Fred. Um, if you like this program and you like our other programs, tell your friends. Have them follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever they get their podcasts. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.